This is our third week through um, this chapter, and we've been studying through the book of Revelation verse by verse uh, and chapter by chapter, and we are now in chapter 14, and we're going to pick back up in verse 12 when we start this morning. And, but before we read on through this chapter and then begin to study through it, I want to remind us, since we're taking a couple of weeks, we're taking this chapter in, in three bites, so to speak, is I want to remind us that up to this point we've looked at the differences between two groups of people. We've looked at the differences uh, between those who uh, uh, receive the mark of God, the 144,000 uh, uh, Jewish male virgins who are witnesses for God at this time, but we take them, these who God has put their mark upon, these who serve and follow God where, wherever He leads them to through this tribulation period, and we see the differences between these guys in this chapter, and if you remember, those who take the mark of the beast, which is detailed for us in, in Revelation chapter 13. And, and it's not just those who take the mark of the beast as we've been studying this, but it's those who um, willingly reject God's warnings. If you remember, we studied that pretty much in detail last week, but it's those who have rejected God's warning and still take the mark of the beast on them during this time of tribulation. And and, and, and we think about that, as I talked about last week, and go, why would they do such a thing? And, and, it's, and they do it because there's a gain. There's a benefit for them in doing this. And, and it's a temporary benefit. And even though there is a temporary benefit, a temporary gain for those who take the mark of the beast at this time, we are told clearly that the consequences for doing so are eternal. And man, that's often how it is with the things that this life has to offer us, the temporal things of this world that are passing away. Uh, passing away. Uh, Bible tells us that it, you know, it, it all falls really into three categories, the, the lust of the eyes, the, the, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and, and, and all the temporary things that we might exchange for the things of God uh, are there at best temporal because the Bible says that all of those things can, that, we, that we cling on to, that we, that we hook our, our, ourselves into, that they're all passing away. They're all going to burn away. They don't endure. And even though there will be this temporal gain, there will be the eternal consequences for those who take the mark. Now last week, as we studied through verses 6-13, through 13, we looked at um, three angels. You remember? Three angels who will be sent by God at the halfway point of the tribulation. And, and they are sent by God in order to deliver three messages to the inhabitants of the earth. And, and as they fly through the sky, these angels, not only are they seen, but they are heard, all of them by the inhabitants of the earth. The first message sent out by the first angel, we're told, is the everlasting gospel. And I won't go into the details all that again and what that exactly means, but we know the important thing is this angel will fly through the sky and with a loud voice, he'll call out to all the people of the earth, calling them to two things, calling them to give glory to God and to worship Him as Creator. After that, a second angel will, will follow and his message will be an announcement. He, a, a, a proclamation, an announcement that declares the fall of Babylon. And with the fall of Babylon, and that will be the city in which the Antichrist will, will set up his reign upon the earth, 
But with the fall of Babylon, what we see is that it'll bring an end. It'll bring to an, an end to everything that the inhabitants of the earth who do not trust in God will come to put their faith in, to come to put their trust in. And see, it's that simple. If you begin to think about it, it's that simple. Before I gave my life to Jesus Christ, you know what I put my faith in? You know what I put my trust in? And some people like atheists, they'll say, well, I don't have faith. That's, that's not true. Everybody has a faith. Everybody's putting their trust and their hope in something. And it's either in the things of this life and the things that this world has to offer, or it's in God. There's no in between. That's what it boils down to. And the same is true here. And, and, and with the fall of Babylon, what God allows is for everything that these people at this time have come to put their hope and their faith in, He allows it to crumble to nothing. And, and that's the thing about putting your trust in something that's temporary. Even though there may be a gain that's, that's for a time, eventually it's going to crumble away. Think about the, the, the housing market bubble bursting in 2007 or, or, or the, some of the financial crises that's taken place in our own country with the crash of the stock market. And, and you begin to see the people who have put their faith and their hope in these kinds of things that the world has to offer. When, when the bottom falls out from underneath them, when it all comes crashing down, they're hopeless. They're filled with despair. And that's why we need to make sure and check our own hearts again this morning and going, who are we serving? What are we putting our hope in? What have we put our faith in? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be financially wise and, and, and do these kinds of things, but don't make that your God. Don't put your faith in that. Don't put your trust and hope in that. You know, in talking to some people, you know, we can even put our faith and our hope in our health. Not just finances, maybe in our job or in a relationship. But at best, these things are temporary. Now, this is the second message that comes with the fall of Babylon and, 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 and the, the crumbling of the faith and the hope of the inhabitants of the earth. But then the third angel is sent out with a, with a message of warning. A warning that is encouraging and, and, and really discouraging the, 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 the people of the earth to, to, to take this mark. And, and, and this angel is very clear telling them that if they choose to worship the beast, if they choose to take the mark of the beast, that they will receive ultimately the full wrath of God and they will be tormented with fire forever and ever. And in light of these messages, we ended last week in verses 12 and 13. If you want to look there, that's kind of where we're going to pick back up. We ended with verses 12 and 13, and we read how the saints at this time, the tribulation saints, who do not take the mark of the beast, who put their faith in Jesus and refuse to take the mark of the beast at the risk of their own life, God encourages them in these verses to have patience. Literally, to have endurance. That's what patience means, is to endure. To have endurance. And, and that automatically implies that there's going to be some kind of tribulation that they're going to go through. And God says, have patience. Have endurance. He says, knowing that even if you die in the Lord, in your faith, that you'll be blessed by God and you will find eternal rest. And it's just a reminder for us again, is what kind of perspective are we living with today? 
Are our eyes drawn off heaven? Are our eyes drawn off of Christ and brought down to this place that we live in where we can only see the temporal things? And in doing so, we lose patience. In doing so, we lack endurance. Because we're not living with that perspective, with that understanding that this life is temporary. That our citizenship is in heaven. That we have something better waiting for us. And as we look at this encouragement, we look at these remaining verses of this chapter, and we're going to read about three additional angels who come to declare and execute. They're going to declare and execute God's harvesting as we'll see here, God's harvesting of the earth. And so if you'll read with me or follow along with me in Revelation 14, verse 12, it says again, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works Follow them. And I, I point out last week that simply means that God says, I see your faithfulness to me, and, and they will follow you, and there will be rewards. There will be blessings. God's taken note. And then John writes in verse 14, he says, And then I looked, and behold, on a white cloud, or beheld a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth, or the harvest of the earth, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So, verse 16, he, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle in to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside of the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand these things. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us. Um, your Holy Spirit, um, in, in, in so that we may discern truth. Father, that we may have those ears to hear and receive the blessing as we apply um, what You're uh, telling us, what You're making known to us to our lives today. And Lord, we again recognize that it's all about Jesus. And so Lord, we pray, God, that You would continue to be here with us. We pray, Lord, that our thoughts would be upon You. We pray, Lord, that our affections would be towards You alone. And I pray, God, that You would soften our hearts and allow You, Lord, to touch places perhaps that we've held back for a long time. God, I pray You would minister to each one of us in a personal 
and individual way, God, that you would give us revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you look back to verses 14 through 16, I'm not going to go too much into the 12 through 13 that we read to kind of transition, but I want to point out that it's important, I think, to begin our study uh, of the end of this chapter by looking back to verses 12 and 13, because these two verses is what's painting a contrast for us. And so often as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've seen these contrasts. You know, the contrast between those who take the mark of the beast and, and those who don't, and, and, and so on and so forth, all the way through. But there's another contrast being made here to us. And these two verses, 12 and 13, reveal the contrast between, here it is, if you're taking notes, between the end for those who choose to fear and worship God. That's what we're being told in verses 12 and 13, what their end is. And in the contrast, as we read through the rest of this chapter, of the end for those who reject God that we now read about again in these remaining verses. And, and these are those, literally, who have chosen to exchange the temporary pleasures and the false securities of this life for the eternal wrath of God. And in the final verses of this chapter, we see the reason for Jesus' second return. His return to the earth, that is, He is seen returning with His angels in order to take hold of what He has redeemed with His own blood and to execute judgment upon those who have rejected Him. If you remember in the beginning of this book, uh, John is in the throne room of God. And there is the scroll with the seven seals upon the scroll. And and as we studied that out, it's clearly the title deed to the earth that mankind lost when when we sinned, when we fell. And and John and and all heaven is saddened because there is none who is worthy to redeem this title deed to the earth, all that is lost. And there's this fear in that moment, or, or this sorrow that's bred in this moment because there's this understanding that without a Redeemer that everything's going to continue in the way that it is, in this state of being lost. But then John says that he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And we know that it's Jesus Christ, and he comes back and and he takes a hold of the the scroll and, 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 and claims the deed to the earth, and all the heavens rejoice and break out in song and praise. Worthy is the lamb who has been slain who can redeem the earth. And now we see being depicted here for us in Jesus' second return, it's as if he's come to go and take possession of that house. I mean, most of you guys are homeowners, and, and you probably don't, most of us have loans on our homes. We only have the deed to our house. The bank's got it, right? Is the title company uh, is taking care of all that. But when, when you've paid off your house, my wife and I had the ability to pay off our house a, a few years ago, and when you get that deed to your house, and you walk in there and you're like, yes, it's mine. You know, Dave Ramsey, what does he say? He says, the grass seems a little greener <laughs> in your front yard. And, 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 but you're, you're laying claim to what's rightfully yours. That's what Jesus is doing here. But the problem is, at this point, is there's some tenants who are dwelling in what is Christ who want nothing to do with God or God's Son. And there's an eviction that's going to take place. And, and, and really, if that's another way of looking at what we're reading here with Jesus' second return. Why is He coming? And why is He pictured with the sickle? You know, sickle, the sickle is always kind of pictured with the grim reaper, right? 
the guy in the black robe. And, and, and now we see this wonderful Son of Man on a cloud, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory with a crown and a sharp sickle in his hand. And, and, and he's coming to reap. He's coming to reap. And in the final verses of this chapter, we see the reason for Jesus' second return and, 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 and as He's taken hold of these things. But remember, as we look back again to the beginning of this chapter, that John, when he began to write this chapter in chapter 14, he describes seeing Jesus standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem with 144,000 sealed witnesses of God at His side. And at that time, I, I pointed out how this was simply a prophetic reference to Jesus' second coming, which will take place at the end of the seven years of the tribulation. So as John now writes about seeing one like the Son of Man on a white cloud with the crown of, a crown of glory, a golden crown, and a sharp sickle in his hand, we clearly see that the mission of Jesus' second return is not to save, but to judge. In fact, the sharp sickle that is told or spoken of in verse 14 that is seen in the hand of Jesus, it is symbolic. Just like it's symbolic when it's in the hand of the grim reaper. Right? You all understand that. There's no misunderstanding here. It's symbolic of judgment. Specifically, a judgment of death. And as Jesus comes to harvest the earth at this time, we see that it is to reap, we're told, the fruit of from the seeds of unrighteousness that have been sown by these haters of God. These who have, who have willingly said, no, we are not going to heed the warning. Yes, we're going to take our chances and we're going to worship the beast and take his mark. Furthermore, the gold crown that Jesus wears here that we see, it, it points us to the authority, right? A golden crown, a, a kingly crown. And it points us to the authority that he has been given and how all things will be made subject to him at this time when he returns. You see, there are many people who still have their free will, right? And many people with their free will refuse to be subject to Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we say, yes, I believe in you, really what we're saying in one sense is, is you are my Lord, and the problem before that is, is that we, in one form or one fashion, said that we are our Lord. We are who we serve. We are who we follow. And, and if you're like me, God basically talks to me like this. He, he came to me and he said, how's that working out for you? Not so good. You know, and there's other things that the Lord spoke to me when he led me and drew me to him. But ultimately, it was a message like that and where God says, I have so much better for you. Trust me with your life. Put your life in my hands. Submit to me as Lord of your life. And here he comes as Lord, as King, with a crown upon his head, a golden crown upon his head, and all authority. And there's coming this time we see when we look at this where all of creation will be made subject to him. And matter of fact, we read about this. Paul writes about this, Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9-10, through 10, which says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and has given, them the, given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, and of those on the earth, and even those that are under the earth. 
And, and we're getting a little glimpse of that time that the Bible talks about when the Lord comes and all will bow the knee. Now, an additional thing for us to take note of here in verse 14 is this reference to the Son of Man. It seems to be a mystery in a lot of people's minds um, attached to this title. And, and this title, the Son of Man, is first found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. So if you wish to know a lot about it, you need to start there. You need to go to the book of Ezekiel, you need to read it, you need to study it, and you need to understand it. Because in the book of, the book of Ezekiel, um, uh, the Messiah who was prophesied to come, specifically as the Redeemer of the nation of Israel, as, as the prophet is, is, is conveying these things, he's referred to as the Son of Man or given the title of the Son of Man 39 times in the book of Ezekiel. And as we look forward to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus Himself exclusively referred to Himself as the Son of Man, going back to these Old Testament references, in the Gospels, he exclusively referred to himself as the Son of Man 78 times in all four Gospels. In light of this, we should seek to understand what this title means. If Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man is mentioned here as returning with the sharp sickle, and we look back to the Old Testament, which prophesies the Messiah as the title of the Son of Man, we, we should go, well, what does that really mean? And, and I will be the first to tell you, and if anyone wants to argue this, they, they can, but the Bible does not define its exact meaning. I'm going to tell you that. The Bible doesn't say, the Son of Man means this. There's not an exact definition that's attached to this title. But again, that doesn't mean that we can't understand it because the title of the Son of Man, if you just look at those words itself, you see that it has an obvious reference to the fact, ultimately, that Jesus Himself was perfect humanity. Son of man. Perfect humanity. In other words, what I mean is He as God came down in the flesh and lived among us as a perfect human being. By doing this, He fulfilled the law of Moses, which you and I cannot do. That's why we've been given this new covenant. And He did, by doing that, what no other human being has been able to do or can do. Perfectly fulfilling the law. And by claiming this title, the Son of Man, Jesus is not only giving us an idea of who He is and what, what He came to do and did, but He's also identifying with the people that He had come to save. You and I. Human beings. Meaning Jesus came to be something more than just the Jewish Messiah. Okay, let me say that again. With this title, the Son of Man, Jesus is identifying the fact that He came to be something more than just the Jewish Messiah. He came to save the whole world. Therefore, Jesus as the Son of Man is the Messiah, the Savior to the Gentiles and the Jews alike. And when Jesus first started His ministry, He made this point. He Himself illustrated and communicated this point. And He did so by referring to Himself as the Son of Man in response to a man by the name of Nathaniel. Specifically, when Nathaniel declared Jesus to be the Son of God and the King of Israel. 
Is Jesus those things? Absolutely. But he's more. And that's what Jesus is, is getting across to Nathaniel. And you can read about this in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, verses 47 through 51, we get this account. And it says that Jesus, he saw Nathaniel coming towards him, and he said this of him. Jesus speaking to Nathaniel as Nathaniel's walking up. He says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now that in itself is a whole other Bible study. But Nathaniel said to him, <laughs> I don't think I would be able to say this. I'd be like, you talking to me? No deceit? But Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, he said, hey, before Philip called you, when you were still under that fig tree, he said, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, in other words, teacher, he said, you are the Son of God. You are the King of of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him also, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon who? Not the king of Israel, not the son of God, but the son of man is what Jesus says. And so clearly, Jesus wasn't rebuking him and saying, no, I'm not the Son of God. No, I'm not the King of Israel. He was opening his understanding. Daniel was rightly calling Jesus the Son of God and rightly calling him the King of Israel because that's exactly who Jesus is. But that's not all that Jesus is. And remember, who was Nathaniel? Nathaniel was a Jew. And so, so when Jesus pointed out to him by his own declaration that he is also the Son of Man, he was really challenging Nathaniel, challenging this Jewish man to expand his point of view and see that he had come to save all of mankind, not just the Jew. And that's important for this chapter where we see who comes, not the Son of God, not like the Son of God, not like the King of Israel. And Jesus will come as those things, as John describes that also and has already made that point. But here in verse 14, it's specifically, the Son of Man is a reference to the Savior of the whole world. But because, if you go back to Philippians chapter 4, because Jesus laid down His life as the Savior of the whole world, it afforded to Him, God, the privilege the honor of having everything brought into his subjection. Again, it's a picture of his servanthood. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the King of Israel. But those things have been entrusted to him because he is the servant who came to save. Now, the second thing this title, the Son of Man, refers to is the fact that Jesus, who is the Son of God, meaning that he is fully in divine nature, Son of God, Son of man is that he's also fully human. In other words, Jesus is God in a human body. And, 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 and this is things that we talk about that we go, yeah, I profess that, I believe that, but there is such a great theological truth attached to this that we've got to look at it because the very forgiveness of our sins hinges upon this fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
In other words, if Jesus is not God in the flesh who was crucified unto death and then rose from the grave, then our sins have not been forgiven. And the Bible says that we are still dead in our sins, that we're lost, that there's no hope for us. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man who was crucified and sacrificed and rose again, then there's no hope. None. And this becomes very evident by what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter. Go and read it. That's the whole message. That's the whole point that's being conveyed there. And in that chapter, Paul points out that as death came to earth by one man's sin, mainly who? Adam. So too by one sinless man, Paul points out, Jesus, we have been made alive. Then, Paul kind of compresses it all here in verses 20 through 22 of Corinthians chapter 15 when he declares this. He says, Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die. Even so, in Christ all all shall be made alive. So, because sin entered in through a man, the debt for sin, which is death, had to be paid by a had to be paid by a man. Moreover, it had to be a man who never sinned. Not only a man who never sinned, but one who never sinned and was had 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 earned himself the right to be set free from the debt of death or the penalty of death is the result to sin. But, but one who was to take that reward, that prize, what he has earned and said, I'm going to lay it down for everybody else. Not only somebody who was qualified, but somebody who was willing. Somebody who was willing to make the payment for a debt that he does not owe. And that's where the Son of God comes into effect. Son of God and Son of Man perfectly sinless, but yet so filled with love that He would willingly lay down His life for us. And in these verses, in verses 15, Paul makes a contrasting comparison between Adam and Jesus. And to better understand the whole thing, we've got to remember, we've got to keep in mind that Adam was like Jesus in that he's the only man to have come into this world who was without sin. When Adam was created, there was a time when he was without sin. But Adam, like the rest of mankind, is unlike Jesus in that Jesus, who is fully divine in nature, he remained without sin. Only Jesus, who was fully human, born of a virgin, was without sin, and then being fully God, remained sinless, having that sinless nature perfect nature, divine nature. Therefore, He was the only one who could and would pay the debt that we owed by giving up His life for ours. The point of all of this is to see that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and He was sent the first time by God His Father to save us. And the debt of death that we owed, that's what He came to do. And clearly at that time, um, clearly God at that time did not send, we're told, He did not send His Son to condemn us, right? But He sent His Son to give us grace. He sent His Son to give us forgiveness to anyone who will put his faith in their faith in Jesus. However, 
The contrast we see here in verse 14 that when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns to judge the earth, it'll be with a sharp sickle in His hand. And at that time, Jesus will judge all who have rejected Him, all who have rejected the payment that He willingly made for them. And in doing so, Jesus, the Son of Man, will return to collect the debt that they owe, saying, pay up or get out. Now in verse 15 we read and it says, And there was another angel that came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap for the time of, has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth, for the earth is ripe. So he, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle and on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, when we're talking about the second coming of Jesus and the judgment that will take place, we must... Notice that these verses point out a very important thing. These verses here, these two verses, point out a very important thing that describes to us, once again, the merciful nature of God. And man, I don't think there's a place in Scripture, and I've not done the research myself, you can do that. I don't see there's a place in Scripture in the Old Testament or in the New Testament where you have an outpouring or an example or a manifestation of God's judgment where you don't see God's grace and God's mercy also intermixed. And we see again, like I said, the merciful nature of God, specifically if you look here in verse 15, verse 15 where it tells us that the angel will be sent to reap the earth because the harvest of the earth is ripe. This word ripe is the Greek word um, and it carries with it the idea of being overripe. Like an overripe piece of fruit that is turning black and that has started to be decompose. My wife, she, she eats these fruit smoothies for breakfast every morning. I'm personally a, a bacon and eggs and potato kind of guy. Not no fruit smoothie. But my wife will buy these bananas at City Market that are overripe. And they got this red tape around them, and they're in this special section where you really can't see them, and they're over there because they're gross-looking. <laughs> Overripe bananas are nasty. I mean, I think they can taste good and maybe in a fruit smoothie, but, I mean, they're black, and they're bruised, and they're, I mean, they're overripe. And, and, and we, had, we had those little cutie oranges, by the way. This, you know, they come out this time of year, and we usually just, I usually I like them, so I just tear a hole and then grab a few out and eat them. Um, my daughter was sifting through there the other day, and she put her hand into an overripe orange, one of those little cuties. And she pulled it out, and was like, oh, Dad. And it was gross. It was rotted and falling apart, and... And, and it, it couldn't happen to a better person. Thank you, Molly. <laughs> but that's the word that's being used here. We don't think about ripe, where you go in the heat of the, the, the summer and pick yourself a beautifully ripe peach, and you, you clean it and you eat it. That's not the kind of ripe that we're talking about here with this word, exereno. It's that nasty, rotted banana. It's that 
piece of fruit that you grab a hold of and it just decomposes right there in your hand. And this is important to take note of because, again, it once again points out the fact that God's judgment here that we're being told about at this time, God's judgment is going to come when it seems to us like it's past due and not unjustly premature. And I don't know about you, but I already look at the earth and I go, God, it's ripe for judgment. I go, God, it's overripe for judgment. But not yet. In other words, in other words, as we look at this, God's acts of judgment, they are restrained. They are precise. And God does not judge simply because he, he's been made mad. In fact, over and over again, as we've just been studying through the book of Revelation and looking at these judgments of God that are to come, we have seen how, how God who is long-suffering, how God is willing that none should perish and takes no pleasure in the, in the death of the, of the wicked, we see that God is waiting in expectancy for the people of the world to repent and to be saved from this eternal judgment that is to come. Over and over again. Like that loving father who was waiting for the prodigal son in expectation to come home. And the fact of the matter is, is when I read about God's grace and when I read about God's mercy in this way and when I read about the controlled way that He moves to judgment, I'm humbled and I'm amazed primarily because none of us are like this. I'm not like this. We are not like this. Meaning when a person forsakes us, when a person betrays us, when a person deals treacherously with us, our first response is usually to retaliate. To do unto them as they have just done unto us. Or at the very least, what do we do? We cry out for our justice. We do not wait with patience or expectancy for the people who have repeatedly sinned against us to repent so that we can forgive them. But yet our God does over and over and over again. The Bible tells us in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 that His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our God does. But according to these verses, listen guys, according to these verses, there is coming a time will God, when God will enact His promised judgment. There is coming a time when God will bring forth his judgment and in second peter chapter 3 it tells us that the lord is not slack concerning his promises the lord is not slack as some count as some count slackness but he is long-suffering towards us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance but even as peter points out the long-suffering nature of god here in these verses he also points out the fact that god is not slack concerning his promises to judge so make no mistake about it, there is soon coming a time when God will say, enough is enough. When that fruit is overripe and He comes to harvest, and at that time, God who is righteous, God who is just, will judge, and we're told that the full measure of His wrath will be poured out upon those who ultimately have rejected His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if we the church do not proclaim this part of the message, we are telling people a lie a lie. 
But make no mistake, until that day comes, the Bible is clear in teaching us that we are Christians, that we need to be salt. Think about this in the, in the idea of, a, of something rotting away. The Bible says we're called to be salt to this world, this world which is ripe for judgment, the judgment of God. And salt by nature, as you know, probably does three specific things. First, it seasons. It makes things taste better. Do you, by your life, the way you live it, the words you speak, do we make things taste better? Secondly, salt makes a person thirsty. By the way you live, by the words you speak, do you put a godly thirst in people for the things that we have received? But more importantly, salt has the ability to preserve. And as we're called to be salt to this world, we must remember that we've been given the Holy Spirit of God first and also the life-changing Word of God. And as a result, we are to be living, we are to be speaking, and we are to be spreading the truth of God's Word in the power of the Holy Spirit to this world that is rotting away in order that it may be preserved so that many are saved before the judgment of God comes. Verse 17, we read, and it says, And then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire, and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. There are so much in these two verses. Uh, it's it's hard for me to just keep it focused, and so I'm going to try real hard here. But as the first thing I want to point out is, as you know, when God first judged the earth, God's judged this earth already once before. And at that time, He did so by water with a global flood. Yes, I believe in that. 100%. And once the waters receded from the face of the earth, God, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, He made a covenant with with promise, a covenantal promise with, with Noah, who survived the flood, saying, Never again shall all of the flesh be cut off by the water of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we see here that when Jesus comes this time, the second time, to execute judgment upon the earth, it is with his angels who have power, we're told, over fire. Now, that's interesting because fire certainly has the ability to destroy, but it also is used to refine, right? The refiner's fire. To purify. And God's using this at this time, and in doing so, we can see that He's, he's doing this so that the earth might ultimately be purified of the unrighteousness that it's consumed by. And I'm going to try to stay on track, but just make the connection in your own life. God refines, God purifies our own lives to bring out the dross, to remove the unrighteousness through the trial of fire, through the hardships of these lives that we live. God uses them to do a good work. And so this angel who comes with the power over fire and says that he'll thrust in his sharp sickle and he'll gather, listen to the wordage here, the clusters of the vine of the earth, which appears, which, which, or excuse me, the, the, the clusters of the vine of the earth, which bears grapes that are fully ripe. In light of this, it's interesting to note that in Scripture, if you do a, a word study, uh, of, of vine throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Basically, the vine is representative in Scripture of three things. Three. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the choice vine, the noble vine which God has planted. But when we look to the New Testament, we see that the church is also pictured as part of the vine, specifically branches that have been grafted in, and we who make up the church are called as the branches who have been grafted into the vine. We're called to what? To abide. To abide in Jesus who is the true vine so that we might bear much fruit. Starting to make some sense here. But here, as we see that there there is a, a, a third depiction of the vine in Scripture, the vine of the earth, specifically the remaining inhabitants of the earth, and being pictured as the vine, they are also seen as producing what? Fruit. Ripe fruit. However, I just want to let you know that this this word ripe, it's not the same Greek word that was used back in verse 15 for ripe. It's a different Greek word. And the word that is used here is akmadzo. And it means this, to have come to a full maturity. Not overripe, but something that's come to a full maturity. In other words, as Christians, when we abide in Christ who is the true vine... We, as a result, bear fruit, right? Fruit, and the fruit that we're told that is produced in us is righteous fruit. Specifically, the Bible talks about this as the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the Bible says that these fruits that are produced in us as we abide in Christ, these fruits lead to an everlasting life. Akmadzo is the same word that's used there. There's a maturity that's brought forth. Uh, uh, It comes to full maturity, to everlasting life. But those who are of the vine of the earth, they bear unrighteous fruits. That's what we see here. Specifically, the fruits of the flesh or the works of the flesh, which we're told also in Galatians chapter 5, is adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, and revelries. Of which Galatians chapter 5 says, those who practice such things will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. In light of this, we see that God is simply saying to us in verse 18, if you look there, that when the fruit of the vine of the earth has come to the full maturity, He's going to gather them in. The Bible says that you reap what you sow. The worship team wants to come back up. We're going to just end with this. We're running out of time. Verse 19 through 20, it says, So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside of the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, these two verses really are... The, 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 you have to look back to chapter 9 and chapter, and, and, and into chapter 16 and then into chapter 19. And when we get a little further ahead, we'll tie all of these things together. But for now, point out to you that the wine press in ancient times was much different than perhaps a wine press that you've seen today. 
um, or any kind of fruit press. And in Jesus' day, the, the wine press was a basin that had been chiseled out of like a, a solid piece of stone of granite or something like that. And then grapes were put in this basin and, and people would, would trample on them. They would stomp the grapes with their feet and then the juice would flow out through a channel that had been chiseled into the stone and it would then flow into a second basin. And when Jesus returns to Jerusalem, we'll, we're told or we'll read in Revelation chapter 19 that the kings of the earth will gather together against Israel uh, there in Jerusalem, in the valley specifically of Medjugorje. And, and, and as the kings of the earth gather, we are told that just one of these kings will bring an army that is numbered in 200 million a 200 million man army, just one of these kings that come to fight against Christ at this time. And when we consider this as part of the death toll of the final battle that takes place, the, the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Medjugorje, if you look at this number here that it talks about, it says, and the wine press was trampled outside of the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Now, if you do some research, most people believe that the horse's bridle is a number that would be figured around four and a half feet. 1,600 furlongs is equivalent to 200 miles. And when you study out those passages in the other Scripture and you look at this battle and you talk about Christ's return and, and, and the bloodshed that's going to result as the harvesting takes place and the trampling takes place, what you're seeing is what you're being told is there's going to be a river of blood that flows for 200 miles, four and a half feet deep. And people will say, well, that's figurative. I believe it's literal. The Bible doesn't go into this kind of great detail to speak of something figuratively. Now, all of this to say this, God's going to judge and Jesus is coming back. God is going to judge and Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus left, we see that all of His disciples were living their lives expecting His return. The apostles, the disciples who had walked with Jesus, those who were told about Him, the, the, the disciples who made disciples, you study through history and they lived expecting Jesus' return. So this morning I ask this, are we living our lives expecting of His return? Are we waiting expectantly and living godly lives? Are we being the salt that God has called us to be? Are we living connected to the true vine? So that ultimately we too will not be ashamed when Jesus returns to come and get us. I'll end with this, Titus 2, verses 11-14, through 14, if you'll stand with us. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of God our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Father, may that be us.